today on Against the Grain. In the United States, few things seem as wholesome as camping, letting us temporarily escape the daily grind and commune with nature and each other. But Phoebe Young argues that camping has a complicated history, which tells us a lot about Americans' notions of nature and the nation. She discusses the various forms that camping has taken in this country, from recreational camping to Occupy Wall Street. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. Camping in this country is a hallowed activity, as American as apple pie. But since nature enthusiasts first started camping in the late 19th century, great pains have been taken to distinguish such rusticating from hobo camps and today homeless encampments. As historian Phoebe Young writes, that Americans have come to prize some forms and places for sleeping outside while marginalizing and criminalizing others illustrates how camping embodies certain facets of ongoing national dilemmas. While recreational camping sometimes masquerades as universal, the one form of camping that is without politics, it too arose from a specific outlook and moment in American history. She explores that history in Camping Ground, Public Nature in American Life, from the Civil War to the Occupy Movement. Phoebe, how would you define camping, and why do you group what we might call recreational camping with the overnight political occupation of space, like Occupy, and those who camp because they are without shelter? So... I lump them all under this label of camping because they are in some ways practicing the same kinds of activities, right, Um, of setting up a tent and sleeping outside at kind of the most elemental. Obviously, the circumstances that bring people to do those things are, are wildly different. And so what we get from thinking about these three different categories, if you will, of camping in the same space is to see how they evolved uh, in conversation, in tension uh, with each other, uh, and the ways in which why we think of camping, what automatically springs to mind when someone says camping is recreational, uh, the recreational version, that that's a, there's a history there, uh, and that that wasn't always the case, and that recreational camping in many ways uh, began to define itself for the, the, to the recreational campers uh, as to pushing back against particularly those who camped for functional reasons um, in an earlier period. And so how we think about what recreational camping means, we really can't disentangle it from the other forms. Well, we'll be talking about a whole range of issues as they come across time, but I wanted to sort of begin at the beginning, at least for the United States, and ask you about how at its outset the creation or dispossession and enclosure of of land of agricultural property was a key aspect of the foundation of the United States as a nation. Can you tell us about that history? Absolutely. So it's baked into the sort of social contract, right, in the founding of uh, the United States. Uh, and so going back to John Locke and Thomas Jefferson, uh, talking about how the fundamental 
piece of uh, sort of founding the, the, the nation and of the relationship between government and citizens was about property. And the, the formula for making your own property was to mix your labor with the land, right? To claim a piece of land, to work it, to farm it, and then it becomes your property, right? And according to Jefferson and other founders, this was the route to virtuous citizenship, right? And the basis of the Republic, that government's job was to protect that property, to, to uh, as you say, uh, you know, make available more potential property by uh, expanding, by uh, dispossessing indigenous people, creating more land available to claim in that way. Uh, and so that for particularly the first um, century of uh, the sort of since the founding of the United States really was the kind of foundational way that people understood their relationship um, to the nation as a whole. Can you describe for us the shift that took place in the United States as it moved from being a primarily agrarian society to a more urban industrialized society? and the kind of reaction that created in the uh, late 19th and early 20th centuries? Sure. So that sort of agrarian dream, right, that uh, was based in, in mixing your labor with the land um, was, you know, not available to all from the very beginning, uh, obviously, uh, to gain their own property. But it became over time even less and less possible um, for many Americans to you know, be able to make a sustainable life uh, through agriculture. Uh, and more and more moved to the cities, took jobs in factories, or, or came to the United States from other countries and concentrated in urban areas. And so this kind of deep connection to the land um, began to make some Americans anxious. Uh, the, the, that became less possible, right? That it was not, uh, part, it was part of their kind of the background, um, but living in the cities, working in the office, you, you didn't have that connection. And so among many different reactions to that kind of epical transformation towards an industrial um, economy was uh, that people began to seek out the land in different ways, maybe not to own it, not to work it, um, but to instead mix their leisure with the land and reconnect in that way. So tell us how that looked in the late 19th century. Tell us about the first wave of people who did what we would understand now as recreational camping and the social context in, in which that took place, as well as who we're talking about. Really, I look at the first wave of, of many of what we might think of as recreational campers as, as Civil War veterans, but they're kind of a different case. So I might save them um, for later in, in ways in which they kind of mixed recreational with political forms. But in terms of this shift of those folks in the living in the cities who were seeking a reconnection with the land in the late 19th century, absolutely. So these are uh, largely elite, um, definitely uh, nearly entirely white um, Americans who have leisure time. So in the late 19th century, you know, most working class folks, you know, might get one day off per week and don't have a lot of leisure time or disposable income to spend uh, on leisure activities. So it's really more this upper echelon that we're talking about who have both the time and the money um, to experiment with these different ways of um, 
know, taking a break, of getting out of the city and reconnecting with the land. Because camping at that time took uh, an inordinate amount of uh, effort. Uh, there were not kind of regulated campgrounds where you could expect a certain level of infrastructure uh, waiting for you. you. You sort of had to go out and, and find your own space and bring everything with you. Um, and so we see um, uh, elite Americans, right, that sort of Teddy Roosevelt is, is kind of a um, if you want to attach a, a name to that set, you can think of those kind of upper crust East Coasters um, wanting to venture out and kind of find their um, space out in the great outdoors and kind of rejuvenate themselves in a variety of ways in this kind of late 19th, early uh, 20th century moment. Um, and so that's really what they were seeking in, in lots of ways to do. And, and that's the kind of broader social context. Now, the one of the things that's also happening at this time is that uh, the economy is in these wild boom and bust cycles. And so workers particularly um, get caught uh, in those downturns and there's a lot of unemployment and you see a number of folks joining the ranks of what were called tramps at the time. So mobile uh, uh, sort of migrant Americans, some looking for work, others um, just trying to ride out the economic storm um, that are camping for functional reasons. They are uh, in a variety of kinds of spaces um, causing alarm for many Americans about what, what this kind of rootlessness meant for the nation. Um, this was you know, seen as the tramp problem. So you've got these elite you know, uh, recreational campers out there, you know, playing in nature. And then you uh, have these um, folks who are just trying to kind of make it and, and using camping as a kind of rational strategy um, during an economic downturn. And recreational campers in particular want to distance themselves and make sure people don't mistake them for tramps. So right at the beginning, this idea of recreational camping has built into it this uh, attempt to differentiate uh, itself, right, from those who are camping for other kinds of reasons, that it's, it's really from the get-go um, that that division shows up. So interesting how that, of course, remains to this day. Let me ask you about the environmentalist and conservationist John Muir of Sierra Club fame. What shaped his idea of wilderness itself, of a very contested notion, right, of uninhabited space? And how did he in turn influence how Americans saw it as it relates to camping? John Muir, who we tend to know, right, from the moment in which he is kind of proclaiming the glories of, of the Sierra, uh, is, you know, he's got a kind of backstory as to how he gets to that particular vision. Um, and so his early travels in the immediate aftermath of the post-Civil War South, it takes this thousand mile walk, um, uh, to uh, the Gulf Coast um, in 1867, uh, and he's kind of ambivalent. He, he is enthralled with the idea of nature and will do many, you know, go through many hoops to observe and be part of it, but he hadn't yet quite come to this sense of immersing yourself in a leisured way was a of balm, right? Or that this was something that was spiritually healing. It was, he, he loved being in nature, but he liked sleeping inside. He did not particularly like camping out, um, that he'd much prefer to sort of stay on somebody's stranger's floor or in their hayloft um, than to camp out um, on his own. 
but he gets to the the Sierras and he starts to develop a different kind of outlook. And partly this comes through his travels in the South and encounters with African-American freed people, uh, as well as indigenous folks in the Yosemite region. And he, he looks at the way they are camping um, and the sort of functional versions uh, of these sort of, you know, displaced uh, uh, former enslaved people um, and finds it that there's something not quite civilized in his words to it, that uh, it's, it's sort of too much um, out of necessity. And in a similar way, looking at um, Awanichi or other indigenous um, people in um, the Sierras to see, he sees their interdependence. He sees them um, at least partly how they are living off the land. Um, and knowing deeply the horticulture of uh, the the region, um, but he he doesn't he's not attracted to doing that. He he sort of disdains it. He says, "I should learn how to boil lupin and and um, eat saxifrage and and make acorn bread like um, the Indians," but he doesn't do that. Um, there's again, he prefers. He comes to this feeling of of being the best way to experience nature is to kind of be apart from it, to be an, an ascetic. He's famous for kind of heading out into the Sierras with kind of a, a moldy hunk of cheese and maybe half a loaf of bread and maybe a blanket, um, but really no equipment um, or ability to um, make his own food. And he just kind of uh, wanders in this, this state uh, and believes that that kind of uh, independence from nature is makes him the best observer the best able to kind of commune with the land. Um, and so that, again, you see this sort of uh, love of being in nature, but also this attempt to distance oneself from um, other versions, non kind of leisure versions of engaging with nature. Um, and so it's this view that he begins to um, promote uh, to many people to, you know, his famous quotes, you know, going to the mountains is going home. Uh, and believing that that what many you know uh, nerve-stricken, overwrought, over-civilized people, in his words, need is this tonic of nature. And by that he means by just being able to be in it for uh, uh, recreational reasons. Um, now he has some issues with tourists who just want to hit the highlights and then um, head back. He wants people to really um, be in nature and appreciate it. Um, but that he also doesn't want people to kind of engage and interact with the land in the same way that indigenous folks do. And so in the late 19th century, that's kind of the view that people get kind of really attached to uh, in the origins of both the Sierra Club and the early preservationist movement becomes seen as kind of the highest use, right? That using nature for any kind of uh, uh, sort of functional reasons, whether that's sleeping, for functional reasons outside or grazing sheep or other forms of uh, uh, you know, extraction of, of nature, that becomes like the, the, the enemy, right? Among preservationists. And so that's kind of how this vision gets um, more popularized. Now I will, just a caveat, I mean, later in his life, Muir does develop more appreciation and understanding of indigenous lifeways, um, but particularly in this kind of 18, 70s, 1880s, 1890s era, when he's first kind of rising to fame and people are following him, um, he's definitely um, pushed back against those versions. 
And we'll return uh, to this whole idea, this lingering idea of nature as this transcendent experience. But I should say that I'm speaking with historian Phoebe Young about her book, Camping Grounds, Public Nature in American Life, From the Civil War to the Occupy Movement. That's published by Oxford University Press. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So I wanted to ask you about the aftermath of the Civil War, a time where, you know, you've just been describing John Muir in that era and his wanderings. But perhaps surprising to many, you date the emergence of one version of what we might think of as camping, or at least a complicated version of it, to those who are Civil War veterans. Tell us about that. So, and I I mostly speak about Union veterans in this case, um, for reasons that I'll explain. But um, in the Civil War, masses of men, right, hundreds of thousands of men um, uh, volunteer or are conscripted into the army and, and have these army camping experiences that are anything but recreational, um, for sure. Um, but in the aftermath, right, in the, the years after the war, um, Union veterans in particular um, begin to kind of process their memories of the war um, and camp and being in camp and kind of the anecdotes of that camp life of the friendship the camaraderie made within those camps becomes a kind of safe place um, to remember the war uh, and to to be able to not relive the kind of trauma or kind of bloody nature of it there's there's certainly lots of battle stories and, and people are fascinated by those but but many veterans kind of gravitate towards camp life as a, a kind of fonder memory of the war itself. And so veterans organizations, particularly the Grand Army of the Republic, which was the largest organization for uh, Union veterans, um, begins to help promote that particular memory, but also then to use it as a part of their lobbying campaign uh, for uh, veterans pensions, that the federal government should reward veterans for their service. And this is a a campaign that goes on for decades um, in the the 1870s and 80s and 90s um, to continually press the federal government. And so these two things kind of get aligned and and the GAR uh, holds these uh, national encampments, as they call them, that's our kind of annual reunion. And veterans from all over the country would go to a different city. usually in the late summer, uh, and their reunions would be held as camps. They would set up army surplus tents and mass fields and veterans would camp out and in a way reminding um, the public and in some cases themselves, right, of the boys that won the war, that they were the ones who saved the union. Uh, And so this becomes a vehicle both for kind of uh, reunion, um, rejoining with friends, of kind of reconstituting a sense of community which was much more a part of what they were doing about camping than escaping to nature. The, the sort of camp uh, and the sort of backdrop of nature was, was the platform for doing that, but it was really the community that they were after and those kind of social relations. So you said that there was a shift in the early 20th century from a view where in the United States of, of blending one's labor with nature to blending one's leisure with nature. That is, that there was the rise of a consumer culture of camping. Can you tell us what that looked like and the role of the government in fostering 
that kind of culture of camping. In this kind of now early 20th century moment, um, you have this argument being advanced, right? That in a way, the, the mixing is the highest use. And it's certainly the sort of leisure and consumer economy is, is where the U.S. economy is headed um, in the early 20th century. It's not quite there yet in 1900, but it certainly gets there over the next couple of decades. And what you see in the 1920s with the arrival of the uh, Model T automobile um, and sort of growing automobile ownership that is available to the middle classes, uh, that uh, various forms of travel and outdoor leisure explode in popularity and, and move outside of just the upper class and, and to be more widespread. And so what you see in the 1920s is, in a way, eerily um, a, a sort of precedent of things we see today, which is that the, the public lands begin to be overrun. And you see, right, the early uh, set-asides that the federal government and states have made for forests and parks, right, for um, both preservation as well as outdoor recreation, um, begin to just be inundated um, by uh, uh, tourists. Uh, and campers who, who want to use this space. And they're, they're kind of running roughshod over the land, um, nailing their tent stakes to the roots of the sequoia trees, among other things. Uh, and so this uh, belief that this kind of leisure uh, is becomes seen as a right, right? That Americans have the, the right to access these lands uh, to uh, have their you know, recreational connection. Um, with the outdoors. Uh, and you see as well, alongside this, a, you know, rapidly developing consumer market. Um, it's not just the automobile, but all of the accessories, right, that you want to bring with you into camp. And so you look at these early magazines, you know, from the 1920s, popular mechanics and others are telling people, go buy this gear or go build this, you know, um, add on to your car. Uh, to sort of make the camping experience more enjoyable. And so those start to merge. Uh, and But the, the sort of deeper belief is much more about this leisure experience. And even though we might think about that as not consumer per se, you may not be buying anything to do that, um, but that, that sort of using leisure as a way of connecting with the land becomes not just sort of a vision by some as a highest use, but becomes by uh, the 1930s, in fact, sponsored and subsidized by um, federal and state governments um, who look at this and see that they needed to provide infrastructure for these campers, in part to protect the lands, to try to minimize the impact uh, upon the land, but also as a way of, of kind of offering a different version of that social contract, right, of saying that the government's job is to provide this land to allow people to have this opportunity to, you know, have outdoor leisure, and that that is a version, a, a sort of modern version of uh, experiencing your citizenship, your belonging to the nation. So this fellow, Emilio Meineke, um, which we can talk more about as a, a, a Californian, um, at, who designed the Loop Campground, basically every campground you've ever been to that has, you know, loop A uh, that, you know, takes you to site 112. Um, there, he designed this campground in the early 1930s. Um, and his belief was that uh, what people were doing there was in part claiming a share. He said that they were had the rightful uh, choice to claim 
130 millionth part ownership of the land and 130 million being the population at the time. And so he's really making this a kind of analogy to that earlier version of um, claiming your own property by mixing labor with the land. Here he's saying this is a way of claiming part ownership of the nation itself by camping. And so it's that philosophy that really begins to drive the expansion of um, campground infrastructure across the country in the 1930s um, and in subsequent decades. Right. So you have, on the one hand, this idea of camping and, by extension, nature, the outdoors, as being something that really embodies what it is to be American or what the nation is. And then at the same time, the complicated role of others in seeing camping as playing a role that might be somewhat critical of modern American society. I wanted to ask you about recreational camping, especially leading up to the 60s, and the idea of camping as being tied in some way to a critique of American society and to the counterculture. Yeah, so this form of camping in these loop campgrounds, right, that I talked about, the, the popularity of that um, you know, grows even more in the 1950s um, and becomes uh, these campgrounds are packed um, with families with, you know, uh, lots of young children. It's the baby boom time, right? And they become crowded uh, and full of different kind of modern amenities uh, in these campgrounds. And so some of those kids who grew up loving camp camping in this version with their family, but become kind of dissatisfied with what the campground is beginning to represent uh, a, a suburb in a way. It's, it's a suburb out in the woods and, and it, all of the sort of gear and materialistic uh, aspect of the consumption of, of um, recreate, outdoor recreation that, you know, that, that it requires uh, and begin to see it as this reflection of mainstream society that we know, right, by the early 1960s, um, a significant subset of young Americans are seeing as problematic um, and they feel alienated from that mainstream culture and, and they're wanting to look for something that feels more authentic to them and a way of critiquing the, the kind of rapacious consumerist uh, uh, society that uh, the United States had become. Um, but they still liked the outdoors, right? And but they wanted to, to sort of find a different way of connecting with it. And so what we call backpacking, right, is had always existed alongside, I mean, you could call what John Muir did as backpacking, um, even though he carried very little with him. Um, but that form of hiking and camping had always existed, but it was a pretty small slice. Um, of folks, particularly in, in the 1950s. Um, so there were folks that weren't just sort of young people um, doing this, they didn't invent it, um, but they um, sort of began to uh, appreciate what that might do, that they could literally walk away from that crowded loop campground and go find a, a sense of solitude and authenticity out uh, in uh, sort of more remote parts of the backcountry, right? And so they begin from that point of view in sort of a bit of a remove to critique not just the campground itself, but to think about um, the environment uh, and what that rapacious consumer society was doing to uh, these outdoor spaces and sort of degrading the environment uh, and to 
use backpacking as a way to both escape that feeling of being crowded in and, and kind of crunched into this kind of mainstream uh, uh, culture, um, and also to develop a whole new version of thinking about how to relate to nature and to the outdoors, that, that their belief of, you know, this is the origins, right, of, of leave no trace, um, and of that sort of consciousness around um, uh, the natural material, as well as um, uh, the sort of social organization that it might take to preserve it. You're listening to Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. Today, I'm joined by the author of Camping Grounds, Public Nature in American Life from the Civil War to the Occupy Movement, which is published by Oxford University Press. And you can find a link to it on our website, againstthegrain.org. Phoebe Young is Associate Professor of History at the University of Colorado Boulder. Uh, so Phoebe, I'd like to ask you about more overtly political camping, although uh, it's very clear from your book and the arguments that you make that to separate out recreational camping as not political would be a mistake. Um, you mentioned the camping of Civil War veterans. I wonder if you could tell us about more explicitly political camping in the 20th century during the Depression and then through to the Vietnam War. Sure. So, and, and I, I appreciate, um, Sasha, you're, you're, you're noting that, right, even recreational camping has a politics to it, right? If you think about the federal government expanding this landscape for one set of, of leisure-seeking people, that, that there is clearly a, a, a vision of, of society that's built into that. Um, but absolutely, we see examples of camping being used as an explicit um, political tool um, throughout uh, this history. Uh, and it's it you know arguably as you say started with civil war veterans we see it with um, the unemployed in the late 19th century those tramps uh, because some of them begin to organize and and it arguably uh, had the first march on Washington in uh, Coxey's army as they called it in 1894 but probably the one that that many people know best is um, what was called the Bonus Army uh, in 1932 in which a group of World War One veterans. Uh, encamped in various sites around Washington, D.C., um, to try to pressure the federal government to grant their bonuses, um, these veterans' pensions, in a sense, um, early. They were um, not due to be paid until a decade or so later. And because of the emer sort of economic emergency, they were making the argument, as were many folks in Congress, that they should be paid this uh, now rather than waiting. Um, that ultimately failed that cause, but their camp out um, for weeks uh, in Washington caused a national stir. Um, people really paid attention to it. Some critiqued them for what they were doing and, and that it was just a kind of hobo jungle. Um, others felt that this was a very patriotic act that these veterans were doing um, to uh, uh, sort of press the case. Sort of public opinion was, was all over the map on that. Um, but we know that it put a lot of pressure on the administration. And, and at that point, um, uh, Herbert, President Herbert Hoover's response um, kind of he bungled it in a way and that people believed that he could have handled it better. And it was in, in part an ingredient that summer of 1932 in, in the disaffection with Hoover um, and uh, the uh, ultimate election of uh, Franklin Roosevelt. Um, so the camping itself, because of just the persistence and the, the longevity there, um, in, in lasting weeks was partly what allowed that public opinion to kind of develop. 
Um, and so we see that strategy replicated multiple times in the decades since, um, particularly in the 1960s um, and early 1970s. So for example, in 1968, um, there is a six week uh, uh, encampment on the mall in Washington DC um, called Resurrection City, um, which was an aspect of the Poor People's Campaign, a uh, campaign run through the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, Martin Luther King's um, organization, um, held really in the months in the wake of his assassination. Uh, and that this, again, we see um, folks, a multi-racial uh, group of folks camped out um, for weeks at a time in the nation's capital, um, making the case uh, that uh, poverty needed to be higher on the administrative agenda. Again, it put pressure on the administration. Um, and again, we see a kind of uh, heavy-handed uh, eviction of the uh, campers, the protesters, um, late in the game. Um, although at this point, a lot of the public opinion is, has turned against um, the protesters. Um, probably not least because um, uh, they, uh, many were at, by this point um, feeling, uh, many white Americans were, were feeling over and done with the civil rights movement and that this, they just seemed to be making a mess of the Capitol in, in the words of some of those who wrote in the National Park Service. So again, it's, it's this kind of camping, this long-term camping becomes provocative, right? That it's a way of bringing your protest up to the headlines uh, in ways that, uh, you know, even Martin Luther King argued when he suggested that the uh, Poor People's Campaign try an encampment approach. He said, you know, we need something more than a one-day march, which is kind of a remarkable statement, right, um, after the um, momentous and memorable um, one-day march, right, uh, in 1963. That by 1968, he felt we need to do something different, we need to make a lasting impression, that we will not go away until uh, the, their um, sort of protest is recognized. Um, and so camping became the strategy for doing that. Um, so that's the sort of that story. I mean, you, again, we see this happen. The Vietnam veterans against the war had the same kind of um, uh, approach. They had a shorter camp out in um, 1971, uh, but in their sort of big action uh, uh, that was led, this is the moment when John Kerry is making his statement to um, congressional committee um, that they're camping out um, on the mall, right at the, the sort of foot of um, the Capitol itself. And it's the same, make the same argument. Carrie makes the, the argument that this is really important, both symbolically and to just demonstrate uh, the staying power of these protests. Um, so it starts to gather steam at this time. And we see in the late 60s, early 70s, early 80s, a lot of these encamped protests. Right. And of course, there was encampments with the divestment movement against apartheid in South Africa. And then, of course, most spectacularly, Occupy Wall Street, in which activists insisted they were not involved in recreational camping. But what was really striking about what they were doing was the overnight taking of space and, of course, usually urban space. How do you see Occupy Wall Street within this spectrum of political camping? Yes, I mean, I think one of the, uh, you know, partly because it was a nationwide movement, right? I, in the book, focus on the movement in Washington, D.C., um, but that, yes, in city after city, you see this 
um, tactic being deployed of taking up space. And I think one of the things that I find so interesting about this is, is that it's in part, while occupiers themselves were, were very clear to distinguish what they were doing from recreational camping, that in some ways they are still tapping into that formula that the designer of the loop campground had proposed. They were claiming part ownership, right, of the nation. Um, that by actually taking up that space, that land, it not only made their protest visible in a different way um, and made it very provocative um, by claiming that space um, that drove you know, municipal campus officials um, to distraction to figure out what to do um, with them, uh, but that also made a powerful claim on the nation that they were taking up this particular space and that they weren't going away, right? It was very tenacious uh, in the way many Occupy encampments would get evicted and then re, you know, rebuild, restake their tents um, and doing that all through the fall of 2011, right? Coming up now on the, the 10th anniversary of Occupy. Um, so I see Occupy as, as both within this long tradition of encamped protests, although the reaction of many at the time is that it felt unprecedented. It, I guess enough time had elapsed that memories were short enough. And, and we saw some pieces pop up saying, remember the bonus you know, army, remember um, Resurrection City, but that by and large, the public narrative treated this as it was completely new on the scene. Um, but so part of what I, I, I see it as is, is um, the... A, a recent example of this long tradition. But I also, th also think, I mean, what, uh, what I see occupiers sort of trying to do in that space was trying to model a different social organization, right? And in, in ways that connected to those 1960s, 70s backpackers, right? That can we use this space as a way of experimenting with different models of living um, that was outside for them the you know kind of neoliberal capitalist um, order that had you know on the heels of the great uh, recession um, had uh, thrown many people um, back on their heels um, to say the least and so i think partly it's it's both just the tactic and also what they tried to do with those spaces as complex as as they were um, and as, you know, ultimately they, they did get shut down, um, but that, you know, the fact that Occupy, you know, made it to uh, the, you know, uh, halls of Congress and, and you see Congress people discussing with the head of the National Park Service, what is the definition of camping, suggested to me that they were, they were doing something that was confounding expectations. They were mixing those categories of, you know, we see recreational camping as the, the sort of mainstream, uh, wholesome, uh, approved way to camp. And then you have these other marginalized versions, right? The functional camping of, of unsheltered people and this kind of overt political claiming of space through camping. Um, and Occupy sort of came and messed up those boundaries and, and, and people had a hard time sort of figuring that out, um, which I think played into the, the fascination with um, what are they doing in those squares? Indeed. And I should say that I'm speaking with historian Phoebe Young about her book, Camping Grounds, Public Nature in American Life from the Civil War to the Occupy Movement. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. And while we haven't talked in as much uh, detail about the third form of camping that you write about in your book, which is functional camping, that is people who are without shelter camping outside to survive. Occupy Wall Street, of course, melded in many cases, 
that tradition of political camping that you were talking about that dates back through the Depression and earlier uh, into the 19th century, and then also the situation of people who are without shelter. Absolutely, right? So, um, you know, we see this early, you know, with the tramps that I spoke about, we see this in the Depression, not just with those protesting, but um, migrants, uh, like uh, those, you know, escaping the Dust Bowl, uh, or other uh, out of work people living in Hoovervilles. Um, and then, you know, really, I think we see it much more in, in sort of more recent decades, really since um, the 1980s, um, with the rise of uh, sort of crises in uh, unsheltered, uh, uh, more, you know, growing numbers of, of people without shelter. Um, and there's, you know, obviously there's a lot of scholarship on, on what caused that uh, uptick in uh, the 1980s, and there are multiple factors um, with that. Um, one interesting, another melding of uh, these things happened as an encamped protest in Washington, D.C. in the early 80s uh, around the issue um, of homelessness. And uh, it, what it did was it created both a functional space um, for uh, individuals experiencing homelessness to live, but was also an explicit protest against the policies um, of that administration. It was called Reaganville. Um, was the protest in, in 1981. Um, and this uh, went all the way to the Supreme Court um, about whether this kind of protest was allowed um, uh, with a kind of really interesting history about well, where does the line of fun what functional camping ends and political camping begins. Um, and you see the justices sort of wrestling um, with this particular question, uh, some of whom are saying, you know, there can't be any political uh, uh, message for sleeping. You can't have um, uh, sort of political sleeping. Um, but then you see uh, uh, Justice Thurgood Marshall say, well, if, if sitting at a segregated lunch counter or standing in a segregated library um, can um, express protest, then so too can sleeping become, he called it, a monument of protest. Um, and so suggested that, that, again, these things are still intertwined. But of course, we see them often very separately, that what unsheltered people are doing in, in urban spaces um, is seems entirely different, right, from what people are doing either in a political protest or um, recreation, and, and we treat them that way. And, and I think that it's interesting how those divisions have um, become so hardened and that reactions, people's reactions to um, unsheltered people using these spaces is, is often rendered um, as a misuse of space, that that space is supposed to be for um, recreation. You saw that even in that Supreme Court decision from 1984, um, where uh, one of the other justices said, you know, people come to DC and they, they want to see a pleasant green space. They don't want to see uh, it, unsheltered people camping there, right? So uh, those kinds of uh, divisions over what does it mean to have people occupying um, this space for um, reasons of necessity um, has, uh, you know, that, that debate has been going on for a long time and, and continues today. I wanted to ask you about how people, especially those who are critical of American society, you know, often from the left or progressives, um, may have lost sight of the long historical roots of a lot of these things in the way they see questions of of camping and nature. 
On the one hand, you know, you were mentioning that with Occupy Wall Street, there was this sense of taking space in the context of uh, neoliberal cities where a lot of public space had become smaller and smaller and smaller. And so an act of taking space and even prefiguring other ways of living, trying to think about other ways that people could live their lives beyond what we have now. On the other hand, it seems like those people who would be particularly critical of the status quo may have an unreflective view of nature and camping is an extension of that or backpacking is an extension of that, that left uninterrogated could be problematic. Is that something that you see as, are there contradictions here and any way of sort of teasing them apart? Yes. Yeah, so I mean, this is a complicated landscape you've you've um, laid out here um, to navigate. But let me see if I can offer a couple of thoughts. I think, you know, with Occupy, you see different groups in different cities had kind of different relationships to, for example, the um, local unsheltered population who sometimes were resentful of Occupy for um, somehow being allowed uh, to stay in these spaces even sort of less harassed um, by law enforcement than unsheltered people were, if, if that's right. And, and that's saying something. Um, so there were sometimes difficult relationships, but other Occupy encampments also really opened their kitchens to um, unsheltered people and tried to make um, a sense of community there. Um, so it really did become kind of complicated and variated, uh, variable depending on what um, uh, city um, we're talking about. Um, in, in whether they became, you know, unsheltered people became kind of, well, that's not part of what we're trying to address, or whether they came, became sort of part of the movement itself. Um, I do think, um, on the other hand, what you're saying is this sort of unreflective view of nature, of thinking of just, just going out into nature uh, and preserving nature as um, this space for uh, leisure and for people to kind of rejuvenate themselves. It, it creates a it relies upon the exclusions that have been built into um, the creation and use of those spaces for decades right so that to, to say that the kind of ideal is to go out into what appears to be or an ideal is an unpeopled space to find that solitude and some sense of pristine nature um, to in order to understand that you really have to avert your gaze from a much longer history um, of the creation of those spaces, uh, the um, varied accessibility of those spaces to people um, of uh, non-white, non-elite uh, uh, groups. Uh, and that absolutely, I think that leads in part to this division of seeing uh, people who love to go outdoors and camp, but then see uh, unsheltered people camping as causing environmental harm among other things, right? Or preventing them from enjoying their spaces, right? And that who may very honestly want to um, support and ameliorate and, and try to uh, address the problem of, you know, very high housing costs, um, things that are driving um, higher rates of unsheltered populations in um, the cities, we want to solve that issue. That It's not that they're um, uh, sort of trying to obstruct that, but that somehow this notion of that their camping gets in the way, right? And that, that they see that as an inappropriate response um, to uh, being unsheltered. So in a way, I think trying to think more deeply about that longer history 
about those contexts in which um, camping becomes a rational, if not, you know, first choice strategy for unsheltered people. And to see that as, as less um, the problem itself and more of a symptom of a much larger um, social issue that we're dealing with. I'd like to end by asking you about the moment we're living in now. There's been a sharp increase in the already very high levels of people living without shelter during the COVID pandemic. At the same time, in the society at large, there now is sort of an evocation of the biological need to be in nature, such as the idea of forest bathing. How do you see our moment as it relates to this wider or longer view of camping in the United States? So the pandemic is fascinating in the way it revealed some of these trends. And, and I spent last summer kind of rewriting the epilogue to, to include um, a number of uh, these issues. Um, and absolutely, I think, you know, the, the rise in, in unsheltered folks um, preceding and during um, the pandemic um, is uh, uh, something we sort of really have to pay attention to. Um, and I think one of the interesting things that we saw come out of it were some experiments um, with different ways of supporting um, uh, these uh, folks than we'd seen before, uh, solutions that um, had been really resisted in the past. So for example, safe sleeping villages or uh, just putting, um, you know, making a hotel space um, or apartment space available to unsheltered people um, at a high cost. But I think it will be interesting to see kind of how those experiments are um, evaluated uh, now that they may be winding down um, on a number of levels to see whether some of these might provide different openings um, for thinking about this particular problem. Um, but absolutely, I think it's, it's such an irony um, that we have at the same time this expanding uh, group of, of people without shelter at the same time as we're seeing um, a, a rise in interest uh, in thinking about nature, not just as a fun uh, place for recreation, but that there is a biological need, that there's something universal that's built into our bodies and our genes um, to connect with nature. Um, and so watching these two things at the same time over the past few years, to me, I, 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 again, what I see is this incredible disconnect. Whereas if it's true that we have this biological need for nature, then why are not unsheltered people like the healthiest among us? Is, is living outside, right, is, is you know, exposure to the outdoors at a far greater rate than, than most of us stuck at home on our Zoom screens. Um, so... But it's clear that this, this kind of argument around the biological need, um, it, it also has very much to do with leisure. It's, it's built into the foundation, um, I think, or just the basic assumptions of a lot of that research, that it's, it, it sort of rests upon this longer history of creating the idea of recreation in nature. And so some of the studies suggest that there's a, you know, there's a max time um, that where you max out your benefits of being outside, and it's something like 200 minutes a week something like that, that it's like, that's the ideal amount of time, which of course then excludes the people who, who work outside as well as the people who miss live outside um, for most of their, uh, their day. Um, so I'm skeptical um, and of the biological need argument myself. I think uh, 
for to the extent that it works for individuals and it works for me going outside taking a hike helps me de-stress brings my blood pressure down um but to assume that that means it is therefore biologically universal um is is something that um you know makes most historians uncomfortable um that there's at least as much history baked into that particular belief um, uh, as there is biology and to recognize that it, it's differential um, and that it really depends in part on how much you feel like you belong in that space. And if you feel um, not a sense of relaxation, but perhaps a sense of surveillance or danger, that it's not as likely that you're going to feel the kind of biological reward of relaxation and de-stressing in those spaces than some other people. And so my perspective is, is that we have to think a little bit more carefully about how that uh, you know, neurological or biological uh, effect happens uh, and that it's not just a kind of you know, trigger in our uh, uh, hormones per se, um, but that that's conditioned by the social context in which um, we're experiencing. Phoebe Young, thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. I'm very pleased to have been here. Phoebe Young has been my guest. She's Associate Professor of History at the University of Colorado Boulder. We've been discussing her book, Camping Grounds, Public Nature in American Life from the Civil War to the Occupy Movement. You can find a link to that on our website, againstthegrain.org. And of course, you've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening. And please tune in again next time.